Lee. Hey everyone, so lovely to be with you guys today. So we are week two in a three-week series called How God Sees Women. And the reason we're doing this series is not just for our church. We uh, believe that uh, God's purifying fire is burning this into the church around the world. For too long, uh, women have been treated as less than, no longer. Um, so what we've also been doing, we normally meet only on Sundays, but starting last Sunday night, this Sunday night, and the next Sunday night, we've just had a open to the city evenings at 5 p.m. at this venue. You arrive, and there are complimentary snacks, including wine and drinks and lovely snacks. And, uh, and then um, tonight, I'm talking about the five aha moments I had in Scripture that were game changers in helping me to see a better treatment of women. And then we do Q&A after that. Next week is Mother's Day. Uh, and uh, this is quite uh, ironic because the title is Wives Submit. And this was not planned. This is a badly timed title. So I want to assure you that the, the message is, is not going to be what it sounds like. And actually be fantastic for moms to come, especially as they think about their wifely uh, role. And, uh, to, and we're going to explain why in Signal we encourage mutual submission in marriage. And then after that, we are going to start a new series called The Ways of Jesus. The Ways of Jesus, and we're going to take a slow walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we don't just want to go through the Sermon on the Mount. We want the Sermon on the Mount to go through us. So excited. So we've got so much to look forward to. Let me get into today's message. When I first considered moving on from my previous church, I'd look back at the pod I'd played in that church, and I had, I've got I suppose you could describe them as fairly catalytic gifts. And it's important that churches have some catalytic gifts. And I remember thinking, oh, if I go, okay, we need, we need some more catalytic gifts. So I was at the back of an evening meeting, and there were several hundred twenty-somethings. And I started praying, God, please, show us, show us who the next catalytic gifts are. And I felt the Holy Spirit just speak to me out the blue. What if the next catalytic gifts are female? Because I'd been looking at the crowd, I'd only seen the guys. And that's the power of theology. It can blind you to half the room. Blind you to half the room. Now, I know there's far more interesting things to talk about than leadership in a church. And that's why we hardly ever talk about leadership in a church. But let's be honest, those who lead a church affect the whole experience of that church massively. So it's worth taking out just one message in the history of our church to ask the question, can women be pastors? Can women be pastors? But first, what is a pastor? The New Testament uses the terms elder, pastor, and overseer interchangeably to refer to the same person. We're talking about elders, pastors, church leaders. I mean the same thing. Paul and Barnabas, the apostles in the early church, appointed elders in each church. Most likely, most churches had a team of pastors or elders that led and pastored and, and often did the teaching of that church. 1 Timothy 5 they, speaks about the elders who direct the affairs of the church. speaks about especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So there were these teams of people. Could women be part of that team? Or was it an all-boys thing? For most of church history, the answer to the question, can women be pastors, has been, of course not. Women are incapable of leading. They're unstable, irrational, prone to deception. They must be led for their own good. It sounds absolutely shocking. That was the teaching of the church. Up until the 1970s, where the church did a fantastic turnaround, Catholic and Protestant church all repented 
of the doctrine of female inferiority and embrace for the first time belief in female equality. Not just equally saved, but equally capable. It was a brand new idea that came upon the church. So exciting. So can't women lead? Well, the mutualists, the egalitarians, opened the Bible. They said, exactly, let women lead. Let women preach. There was some pushback. They named themselves the complementarians. In the last quarter of the last century, effectively, they invented a new way of reading the Bible that says, absolutely not. Women may be equal to men, but they're still to be subordinate to men. And they got to name themselves, and I think it's a bit of a sleight of hand name, complementarianism, saying, no, we want to pursue the complementary roles of men and women, but by that they meant women follow, men lead. Not exactly what you had in mind when you heard the word complementarity, you know, two sides bringing out the best of each other. And and the irony is in a complementarian church where it's hierarchical, the two most influential places, the bunch of people in a room making decisions for that church and the people behind the pulpit are men only. So you actually cut off from a woman's voice. You cut off from a woman's mind, and you're actually not reflecting the sexual complementarity that Genesis 1 speaks about, where men and women, Adam and Eve, together lead alongside each other to reflect God's image. Anyway, how do complementarians argue for this? Oh, there are many arguments. I wrote a long book to uh, navigate and make sense of each of these arguments. But one of their primary arguments, the one I deal with today, is this. I know it so well. For a decade, I offered this explanation to new members in our church for why we did not ordain female pastors. I would say there are no female pastors or elders in the New Testament, and we wouldn't want to go beyond Scripture in the way we do church. Most people said, oh, well, you seem like nice people. I need a church. But some said, hang on, that doesn't sound right, and decided not to to join. And it was a bummer when people decided not to join our church, but we leaders consoled ourselves. We were being faithful to Jesus. What a shock to discover one day that there's a difference between what the Bible says and what you think it says. But let's hear it from leading complementarians. Sam Storms, a tremendous theologian. He says this, there is no reference anywhere in the New Testament to a female elder. You may wish to object by pointing out that this is an argument from silence. Yes, it is. But it is a deafening silence. Tom Schreiner says, the ministry of women in the early church was notable and significant, but it never supplanted male leadership. Instead, it functioned as a support to male leadership. In other words, women can minister, but they shouldn't lead. They partner with men who lead. And uh, I suppose they got a point because you can't find anywhere in the New Testament where it says something like, Mary the pastor. But one day, I asked myself a question. Hang on, who are the male pastors in the New Testament? I mean, I expected I could find 10. Only in one place, 1 Peter 5, it speaks. Peter, who is an apostle, speaks to elders and he calls himself a fellow elder. Does this mean that when he settled down in a church, he played the function of an elder, possibly? Or does it mean that he's just referring to his age, as some scholars say? But here's the thing. The New Testament gives no names of any pastors or elders outside of Peter, and even he may not be one. I sat on that for a while, and I was stuck. Okay, so we still don't have a name for a female pastor. Then I asked myself another question. Of all the named people in the New Testament, because there are lots, hundred plus, 
Who are, who of them are probably pastors? Because the New Testament, the book of Acts, the letters written to the churches tend to name people that were prominent, prominent for this reason or that reason. And I thought, how could you even work out if any of these named people were pastors of a church? I mean, if every church has got a team of people leading that church and prominent people are named, surely some of these hundred people, some of them would be pastors. Would there be any indications? And uh, this is where, as far as I can see, I did some groundbreaking work, to be honest. I mean, it probably is a theologian who did exactly the same, but uh, for, allow me this, this, this belief that I did some groundbreaking work. And I noticed that there were five clues, five clues. None of them were completely decisive, although the last one I think is, but, um, but if taken together, th these would be signs, this person, yeah, this person was probably a pastor. So the first clue is this, they are targeted for persecution. Okay, so whenever groups of people are targeted by authorities, what do authorities do? They can't arrest the whole bunch. They take the ringleaders, the spokespeople, they throw them in prison and teaches the rest. Be careful. We've got your leader. I mean, this is why Peter and John in the Jerusalem church are in prison. Paul and Silas are in prison. Stephen and James, outspoken leaders and preachers, are martyred. Peter and Paul are eventually martyred. But wait. When Saul participated in the martyrdom of Stephen, who was a public leader and preacher, he tasted blood. And he thought, you know what? We can destroy Christianity. He got permission. And we're told that he went around pursuing and dragging off both men and women and put them in prison. Twice this is mentioned. In other words, in Paul's mind, there were many women in these fledgling churches that had ministries that were significant enough. They were not just cooking, cleaning, and child-rearing. That he concluded, if I can't stop these women, I can't stop this church. N.T. Wright observes, this only makes sense if the women too are seen as leaders, influential figures within the community. Again, not hard proof, but uh, some evidence, at least some plausibility. Let's go to the second clue that we found a pastor here. This, they were first members of a church. They were first members of a church. In Acts chapter 14, we're told that Peter and Paul and Barnabas went around to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, preached the gospel there, preached the gospel, churches came about, and then within months went back, returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and appointed elders in each church. In other words, the people that were there first, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 16, uh, many scholars believe is a reference to a, a, a male pastor where Paul speaks about um, the household of Stephanus. Some of the words, this guy called Stephanus, and his whole household were the first to believe in Corinth and were, played a leadership role. But Clement, who, who was a church leader after the closing of the New Testament, who died in AD 99, he said the apostles had the practice of taking the first converts, they were the first trained people, and put them in charge. Because, you know, they knew the stuff. They'd been trained. So in other words, if you can find somebody who gets in there first, that's also quite probable or plausible that they're a leader. So it's not just Stephanus, by the way. It's Stephanus' whole household. I mean, there must have been an adult woman in that gang. 
But think about Lydia. I love Lydia. In the New Testament, we meet the entrepreneur Lydia from Thyatira, a town in Turkey known for its manufacturing and sale of purple dye. There she purchased the dye, transported it to her other home in Greece, which probably doubled up as the site of her business. And then we're told that in a dream, Paul heard the man of Macedonia, that's in Greece, calling him. So he's got this vision, there's a man calling him. What a surprise when he goes there, and it's not a man, it's a woman. Lydia, a single one at that, is not any woman. She's Paul's first convert in Europe. Having opened her heart to the gospel, she then opens her home and business venue, which now triples up in usage as the meeting place of the new church in town. By the way, every woman, especially single ones, can be inspired by Lydia's go-getter attitude, professional success, and ministry fruitfulness, and also refuse to be stifled by any complementarian belief that marriage is the truly noble purpose for women. Was Lydia a pastor? Probably. Probably. Come to the third clue. The third clue. Is this person a pastor, we ask ourselves? Well, they are if their household hosts a church. Probably. I know modern churches tend to meet in specialized venues, but the first century churches mostly met in larger than usual houses, and and a church in a city would consist of entire households and others who came along to those households. So many churches in the city would therefore consist of these house churches. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy 3 thinks it's a good idea to select leaders from these household leaders. So we might assume that many household churches... Uh, would become church leaders. I mean, look at the church in the city of Colossae. Who can deny that Philemon, there's a letter written to Philemon, who's a wealthy, respected household leader with the church, with the church in his home. Paul even speaks about him as the fellow worker who loves the saints. Was Philemon a pastor? So in his house, there's his wife, there are slaves, There are relatives, there are tenants. He leads this whole household. It's a big home. He invites other people in. It sounds like a guy's going to be a pastor. Well, hang on. We know that there was another house church in uh, in Colossae. This one was led by Nympha, an unfortunate name. We know, after all, she led the other household church in Colossae. Now, I know what complementarians say. They were just home group leaders. I mean, whose house can we meet in next week? But this reveals ignorance about the nature of the household in the first century. The household leader in Greco-Roman times was usually male, called a paterfamilias. You had legal, kingly authority over everyone in his house. But if the husband had died and the senior most person was now a female, she would lead it not as the paterfamilias, but as the materfamilias. And she would automatically oversee those who lived in her house, including children, relatives, slaves, and tenants. And usually what happened in the book of Acts, the entire household would be converted because the householder, the leader, would say, guys, we're Christian now. (laughs) This house was just metamorphosized into a church. These household leaders needed good relational, organizational, and management skills. They needed the ability to teach, discipline, nurture, and administer material resources. They would be responsible to the surrounding community for what went on in that house. All that to say, 
despite the generally low status of women in the public sphere, a matter familiar with a home large enough to host people would have been just as suitable, possessing the same skills as a paterfamilias for the work of church leadership. So we know the names of many of these household church leaders. I hope you're sitting down. Because the New Testament mentions more women's names than men's when detailing those homes in which churches met. Not only Nympha, but also Mary, the mother of Mark, whose home served as a base for the Jerusalem church. Lydia, we spoke about her, the founding member of the Philippian church. Chloe, whose people are literally called Chloe's people and traveled to Paul to report some concerns about the Corinthian church. There's Priscilla, I'll come back to her. And quite possibly an unnamed female household church leader called the elect lady, with a whole letter written to her. Fourth clue. If we found a pastor, as we look at these named people, I want to propose the fourth clue is that they receive ministry designations in Romans chapter 16. They receive ministry designations in Romans 16. Romans 16, when you first read it, seems like the most boring chapter in the Bible. It lists 27 names of people you don't know. Remember that these early churches were small, maybe 30, 40, 50, 60 people. Paul, who has been around, he knows 27 of those people, and he lists them, and he names them. But surely some of these 27 people, especially if Paul knew them, it means they had some prominence in their ministry work, some of them would have been on the leadership team of these churches. But which ones? Well, amazingly, Paul gives us some clues, some identifying phrases. He refers to some of them as those who work hard in the Lord and others as fellow workers. And here's the thing. Paul uses those terms. They are his favorite terms to describe the most significant players in his kingdom advancing team. Timothy, Apollos, Urbanus, Mark, Luke. They're called fellow workers. These are his chief partners in the adventure of spreading the gospel. And he also uses the verb to work hard to designate those worthy of leadership, as well as a key function of eldership. And it's also a favorite way to describe his own ministry. So Paul didn't, like we nowadays, use terms pastor for those who worked in a church, missionary for those who broke open new ground. Instead, he preferred the terms fellow workers and those who work hard in the Lord. Now, of the 27 names in Romans 16, 10 of, the, 10 of these people get these ministry designations. Surely, some of those 10 are pastors in that church. There's a team of them leading this church. Surely, some of the 10. Well, I hope you're still sitting down and looking around. You are good. Seven of these 10 who receive ministry designations are women. Let's list them. Priscilla is called a fellow worker, verse 3. Mary, Trifina, Trifosa, and Persis are said to have worked hard in the Lord. Other notable mentions are junior and apostle. I don't have time to go into that now. Just to say this, the scholarly consensus is that there was a female apostle, Ephesians 4 apostle, by the name of junior. And think about that. The, the highest status person in the early church was an apostle. If you've got a woman who's got the highest status in terms of ministry authority, well, it makes sense that anyone less than that, like a, a pastor of a local church, could also be female. There's Phoebe, who's both a deacon in the church in Sincrae and Paul's patroness. Phoebe is also the one entrusted by, by Paul with traveling to Rome with 
drum roll please, the letter to Romans in her care. Paul's naming of such a high proportion of women leaders in an open society is unparalleled in the entire history of ancient Greek literature. Is it not possible, even probable, that at least some of these seven women in the Roman church, or six because uh, Phoebe wasn't part of the church, whom Paul honors with ministry designations, were on the senior leadership of their church, especially considering that they were mostly based in that church. They were not missionaries on the move says Cynthia Westfall, in the first century Christianity, these terms closely correlate with what would later become ordained clergy. Paul appears to use the terms consistently when honoring leaders. Fifth clue. If you find somebody who's planting a church, leading a church, teaching a church, I want to propose you found a church leader, a pastor. I mean, it walks like a dog. Barks like a dog. See, an evangelist or an apostle may arrive in a town, preach the gospel, start a church, but then they move on. But what happens when you find someone who not only finds a, is a founder of a church, but stays there for several years as, by all appearances, the leader? And I want to propose that there is one man who is almost certainly, in fact, I'm going to go with 100% certainty, One man who is a pastor who does exactly this, his name is Aquila. I mean, he helped start the church with Paul in Corinth, hosting it in his home and financing its work. After being trained up under Paul for 18 months, he sails off with Paul. We're told they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Aquila, apparently to look after some converts that Paul made on the very first Saturday that he was in town. For six to 12 months that Paul is gone, Aquila hosts a church in his home consisting of a growing number of brothers and sisters. And he continues to visit the synagogue looking for receptive people he could engage with the gospel. We know this because one Sabbath, he met a remarkable man called Apollos, who was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He taught about Jesus accurately. He spoke boldly in the synagogue, but he only knew about the baptism of John. And when Aquila heard him, he invited him to his home. Aquila spotted all kinds of gaps in Apollos' theology. He invited him to his home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Elsewhere, we read of Paul's ministry in Rome, where from morning till evening, he was explaining about the kingdom of God. Since the priority of Aquila was not merely gathering Apollos to go to another city, where the fruit of Aquila's theological training of Apollos bore great fruit, and the work Aquila is doing. Was Aquila a pastor? Yes! Aquila was there every step of the way. I only mentioned Aquila, but every single thing Aquila did, Priscilla was by his side. Every single step of the way. Priscilla was by his side. Amazingly, Priscilla was trained by Paul in Corinth. Priscilla helped plant a church in Ephesus. Priscilla helped evangelize and teach a man who would become one of the great teachers of the world. Priscilla hosted a church in her home. I mean, she, everything that Aquila did, Priscilla did with her. But here's what's more mind-blowing. Look at all five clues. She and her husband, Aquila, are the only two people in the New Testament who match all five clues 
for uh, the possibility of a church leader. Was Priscilla targeted for persecution? Yes. Uh, Romans tells us, Romans 16 says she risked her life. Literally using um, um, language that was hero language for men. She risked her life for the gospel, for her partnership with Paul. That only happens if you're a ringleader or a spokesperson. Priscilla was also a first member of a church. Twice! First converts, or if they weren't converts, first members of the church in Corinth, hosting the church in their home. Then they go to Ephesus. They're definitely the first members there once again. Priscilla hosted a church in her house three times. She's got a house church in Corinth. Then she's got a house church in Ephesus. Then she's got a house church in Rome, this over a period of a decade or more. Priscilla received ministry designations. In Romans 16, of the 27 names, her name is mentioned first. Priscilla, the fellow worker. She gets that ministry designation. And Paul even says that all the churches of the Gentiles honor her. I mean, she'd given a long run of her life. She had made, although she'd poured her life in local churches, word of her ministry spread. And lastly, Priscilla planted, led, and taught the church. She was right there with her husband when all of this was happening. And what's the conclusion here? I want to say that we have almost complete certainty we go with 99.9999% that we have found a person who was a pastor, she's also a female. Think about it. The first century was so stridently patriarchal. The, the females generally didn't feature as public leaders. They were kept in the domestic realm. And yet here you've got someone in a stridently patriarchal culture who's a pastor and a female. Now we live in an egalitarian world. And you've got complementarians saying, no female pastors. Let me be honest, it's absurd. It's such serious self-sabotage. It's the church handicapping itself in such a profound way. And I know exactly what the pushback is. Um, uh, in fact, I've written it. I didn't have time for this in my message. But I know there'll be five pushbacks by complementarians. One, no, no, no. But you haven't thought about this. So I've written a little article, you can get it there, www.bit.ly, L-Y, so it's bit.ly, slash 3S1FURR, all small letters, bit.ly, slash 3S1FURR. Five, I speak there about five pushbacks that complementarians will give at this point, and I, and I, ref, I annihilate them. But let me, <laughs> let, me, let me just deal with one. Let me just deal with one, because this is the most popular one. Oh, we know what happened. Aquila was the pastor, and Priscilla was the pastor's wife. That's going to be the pushback. Well, that misses the fact that in every reference, they're doing it together. They are teaching Apollos. They are inviting people to their home. They even run the business together, because they're bivocational. They are a complete team, which is quite a beautiful thing. But the second thing is that there is a couple of mentioned six times in the New Testament. And of those six times, four of the times Priscilla's name comes first. Not to modern ears, that doesn't really mean anything. When I'm WhatsApping Jen and Luke, sometimes I say, hey, Jen and Luke. Sometimes I say, Luke and Jen. It really doesn't mean anything. But in the first century, wives were hardly ever named even. Peter, we're told he's got a wife. What's, he, what's she called in the New Testament? Peter's wife. 
hardly any wives are named at all. And then even more really, hardly, hardly ever are wives named mentioned first. Complementarians say, well, you know, it could just be a fluke. No, no, no. Four of six times, and not just Paul, but Luke in his writings puts her name first. That's not a coincidence. Or maybe she was more high-born or socially prominent. That's why her name went first. But that sidesteps the more obvious meaning. Whenever the New Testament writers put someone's name first in a group, and they do that repeatedly, it's because they are stressing that person's ministry prominence, which usually has something to do with their gifting. For example, Barnabas and Paul were a team. And Barnabas was leading a church, brought team in, Paul to help him. And each time they mention, it says Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. Suddenly they go out and hit the missionary road. Paul goes to another whole level in his ministry as an apostle. His evangelism, his power ministry is mind-blowing. And suddenly it's always Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Peter and the apostles, all gospel writers put Peter's names first every time because Peter's gifting was the most prominent. I looked for all the places in the Bible where a married couple's, both their names are given, and found only three places where the wife's name comes first. Uh, there is, um, is Deborah and her husband, she's a, she's a judge, she is a prophetess, and her husband Lapidoth. Her name comes first because she's got the prominent ministry. There's Hilda the, prof, the prophet, and her husband, who is a, a wardrobe changer for the priestly temple, and his name comes second. And then, of course, there is Mary and Joseph. And, and we know why her name comes first. She gets only the most important ministry ever in human history, bringing the Son of God into the world. Whenever a woman's name comes before her husband, it's because her ministry is more prominent. What are you saying that, 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 that um, Priscilla is like more important than Aquila? No, I'm not trying to say that. I'm, I'm making the point that she's at least his peer. And isn't it crazy we live in a world for a woman to compete with a man, she has to be better than the men. I'm making the same case here. I'm just arguing for her ministry equality. Let's see what this all means. We can release women into leadership. And the world will be so much better for it. I remember when I was in my 20s, uh, being part of a new church planting movement, so exciting, and looking up at these leaders who were in their 40s, they were flying for God. And I remember thinking, wait until I'm 40, I'm going to get him. These guys were planting churches, leading churches, preaching up a storm. I'm in my 20s, and the movement leader one day stands up and he says, guys, age doesn't count. If you're gifted, and you're godly, and you know your Bible, and you're giving it your all, you too can do what we're doing. It blew my mind. I was so motivated to give it my all. Some of the people in that room felt the same motivation. They didn't end up being a pastor like I did. But just removing that ceiling set them free to fly. There's something about a ceiling that can so limit a person's potential. 20 years I served in a church where I watched... Men and women come in that door with the same kind of gifting, but 10 years later, the men were soaring in their gifting, and the women had half-baked gifts. What happened? I'll tell you what it is. Some of the most godly, deferential people in the world are female followers of Jesus. And you tell them there's a line. Just don't cross that line. You know what it does to them? Well, I'll tell you what. You say to the guys, guys, you can go to 100%. 
They're going to go to 100%. You say to the girls, uh, you, 70% is good for you. You know what women do when you tell them 70% because they're so differential? They know there's this line somewhere, they go to 40%. They don't go anywhere near that line. And you fast forward that. We live in a city where the southeaster blows. There's places where trees all bend in one direction, right? <laughs> Complementarian theology as it blows over a church year after year. Women are bent. They don't reach their full potential. And yet all the time, Romans, chap- Romans chapter 12 says, let those with gifts of leadership lead. Let those with gifts of teaching teach. Not gender. Gifting. Godliness. Do you know your Bible? Are you giving it your all? I remember looking at my children, uh, five children, and uh, being at a fairly high point in my life at the time going, oh, I love, love being a pastor. And I remember thinking, how cool it would be. And I looked at my boys, if they could be pastors one day. I mean, serving a church, leading a church, pastoring people, preaching. And I'm not putting it on them because really God could call them to anything. They are, that's only one calling. But I got excited about it in the moment. And then I looked at Ivy and I thought, oh, how wonderful it would be if she marries a pastor. None of us think we're the ones who are creating the glass ceilings. But actually the theology itself takes good people. I like to think I'm a good person. It takes good people and causes us to oppress other people causes us to limit other people. I've just repented of that. It's sad. It's wrong. It needs to change. And some churches are really strict on this. You'll only ever see men leading. You'll only ever see men preaching. That is the majority complementarianism. It neatly applies complementarian theology. But uh, especially in the city of Cape Town, uh, there has been uh, an experiment that is just a few decades old. I've devoted most of my adult life to it. Soft complementarianism. You go, oh, no, of course, only men can be pastors. Only men should be preaching with authority. But you know in your bones it's not right, so you find a way to lift up women because you are a good person. <laughs> so what you do is you go, you know, a cool way we can get women into the leadership is these guys' wives. Let's bring them along. And you fudge it. You call them eldership couples. And you let some of these women preach, and some are particularly careful about not crossing any lines and are very deferential in the way they preached. And they, their gifting tends to rise to, like I said, 40%. Last week, Julie spoke about the problem with this in her own reflection. You see, we're trying to be good to people, but think about some of the unintended consequences about this. Now you've got men and women in a room, but the men are there because they're called to be there. The women are there because they're married to called men. If that man, if, if that woman dies, I've seen it happen. You give the man some time to recover. Get better, we'll make you a pastor again. If the man dies, the hour he dies, your pastoral role dies. All along, you've been there by association. No one will claim it, but it's a token usage of females in the service of the church. They are pouring out their lives just as much as the men. They say they don't want to be pastors. They're happy with the way it is. But I've now known enough women who, given enough time, reflect on this and see the unfairness of it. They were given the responsibility of pastoring, but never the authority. They gave more of their life than they should have given. And then some of those women 
are Priscilla's. They've got the gifting to actually be on this leadership team. But that doesn't then distinguish, distinguish them from the women who are which probably shouldn't be there. Their gifting should put them somewhere else in the church. Not everyone should be a leader. You should find the place where you can lead. When you're dragging people into this responsibility that they're not wired for, that too can be a form of oppression. What about the women who are not so lucky as to marry a man who's a pastor, but they are got Priscilla gifting? Sorry for you. Or what about those women who are married, but... Uh, but, um, sorry, what about those women who are single? <laughs> sorry for you. Come on, we've got to just treat our women better. We've got to treat our women better. I, I'm not sure how to end this message. I kind of just like come to an end of stuff to say. So what I do is I want to pray. I want to pray. By the way, those last 15 minutes were without notes. For those of you listening. <laughs> A much better idea, God, than men leading women is men leading alongside women. God, we pray that we could be a church where there is no glass ceiling, there is no sticky floor, there are no limitations that stop people from um, doing whatever it is that God wants them to do. Jesus, in our city, there actually aren't that many churches that have uh, crossed this line. And we pray that we could be a church that gets this right. Please give us the grace to see men and women teaming together for the kingdom of God. We pray for churches that are still on a journey in this. God, we, uh, try, we don't want to be judgmental to them. But we pray your spirit would do whatever convicting work needs to be done. So we treat our women the way that Jesus would have treated them. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.